There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. What would be the biggest tech acquisition in history is set to close any day now. Microsoft's $68.7 billion deal to buy video game developer Activision Blizzard was first announced in January of 2022. The Federal Trade Commission sued to stop that deal, arguing it would harm competition in gaming, which is a huge market. There are 3 billion players worldwide. The FTC also questioned who would have access to Activision's biggest title, the Call of Duty franchise, in the future. That case went to trial last month, but a federal judge in California denied the commission's request for a preliminary injunction to slow down the deal. Judge Jacqueline Scott Corley wrote, quote, evidence points to more consumer access to Call of Duty and other Activision content. Now, the deal still faces roadblocks in the United Kingdom, where the Competition and Markets Authority first blocked it and has scheduled a hearing to review it next month. But despite that, the deal is expected to go through and that'll change the business of gaming. We'll get into that and what it means for you. This story is the latest in our series, Game Mode. Game Mode is 1A's coverage of video games and the gaming industry. I'm NPR's David Gurra, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Stay with us. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. Let's welcome today's guests. Gene Park joins us from Washington. He's a reporter covering video games for The Washington Post. And Rebecca Valentine is a senior reporter at IGN. That's a site for video game and entertainment news. She's with us from California. It's great to have both of you with us. And I'll mention we invited the FTC, Microsoft, and Activision to participate in today's conversation, but they all declined. Declined. Rebecca, let's go back to January of 2022 to start. That's when this deal was announced. And I wonder what brought it about? What sparked it? Well, David, uh, it kind of came at a time when video game acquisitions have just generally been on the rise. You know, we were seeing sort of a a, a lot of consolidation across the industry. Uh, Xbox had uh, acquired quite a few studios uh, prior to that, trying to build out this portfolio of uh, software uh, and games that it could have uh, to promote its console, uh, consoles, the Xbox consoles. Um, it had recently acquired uh, ZeniMax uh, not that long ago, uh, which is another fairly major publisher, not quite as big as Activision Blizzard, but still still pretty pretty big and pretty surprising deal. And we had seen uh, other other deals of of significant, but not quite that significant size happening elsewhere in the industry. Uh, but the the Activision Blizzard acquisition, I think, came as a surprise to a lot of people just uh, because of the sheer size and scale of it. You know, there's a very, very small handful of publishers that are on the size and scale of Activision Blizzard, uh, Ubisoft, Take-Two, Electronic Arts. Uh, and I, I think the idea that one of the console holders, Xbox, Sony, or Nintendo, might pick up one of those giants was was very, very surprising at the time. 
Gene, let me turn to you. I just want to ask you sort of what this landscape looks like, and Rebecca's giving us some some sense of that, but it's a big world. Uh, there are a lot of people who play games all over the world, um, but there really aren't that, that many players. I wonder if you can just give us a sense of the scale we're talking about here. How big are the players that we're talking about? Microsoft owning the X game, Xbox gaming console, Activision Blizzard developing games like Call of Duty, Diablo, World of Warcraft. Um, just, just give me a sense of their size and, and the scope of these companies. Sure. Um, Microsoft boasts about like 100 million uh, active players uh, per month, but also that doesn't even include uh, the, um, the size of the PlayStation player base, which is even larger. Um, and I think part of the reason why, going back to your original question, David, about why Activision was looked at is because uh, the executives decided that they were worried about other huge companies, other huge tech companies entering the market uh, companies such as Tencent over in China, or Apple, or Google. And we know that Google uh, has already, and, and Amazon as well, has already uh, expressed a lot of interest in, in video games. And if there's any company that has the purchasing power, purchasing power to acquire a company that's as large as a $69 billion Activision Blizzard, it would be a company like Google and Amazon. So uh, that's kind of like the the... the, the the, the stakes at play right now that everyone really wants. The, the market is so huge that it's really, really hard to ignore. You see Netflix even entering the gaming market, Apple as well. Um, so everyone just wants a piece of that pie. And Microsoft uh, went for Activision Blizzard uh, kind of as a preemptive uh, strike against uh, any other competitors that might try to enter the market. Gene, you know, we're talking about the, the size of this pie. How big is it going to get? What are the prospects for, for growth in gaming over the next, say, five, ten years? I would say that it would just keep growing. Mm. Um, video games are a multi-generational uh, thing. There's a reason why the Super Mario Brothers movie uh, earned a billion dollars uh, because Super Mario is a multi-generational character. Uh, he's a character that's been recognized by parents at, at this point right now. Um, it's why it's no wonder the movie made a billion dollars. And that's only going to continue to grow. Uh, sooner or later, we're going to have elderly gamers and the, 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 the Gen Z that grew up with it isn't going to stop gaming. And Gen Z's kids isn't going to stop gaming. It's just going to keep going and going. It's already half the human race by now. So it's, it's only going to be eventually the whole planet sooner or later, as, as long as there's uh, access to tech. Rebecca, uh, I want to read a bit here from a letter that Activision Blizzard sent us. It's a letter they sent to their employees about this merger. Uh, quote, this merger is great for players, workers, and our business, and it will create opportunities to compete against companies with large talent pools, strong IP, and complete control of their markets. Our merger is cleared to close in over 40 countries already, and we remain confident in resolving any remaining regulatory concerns in the UK. So a sense of the state of play there from, from Activision Blizzard. Rebecca, what was the early reaction to this deal, uh, both from people who play games and from the industry itself? Again, some surprise that it was happening, certainly stupefaction at sort of the magnitude of it, how much money is involved here. But, but what was the reaction beyond that? Right. And I think you kind of touched on this at the very beginning. You know, you mentioned sort of the the concern over Call of Duty, right? Like, will, you know, Xbox and Sony compete fairly seriously? Uh, and one of the ways in which they compete is by having taking games exclusive uh, to their own consoles. You know, they do that by having internal studios make games for them. Like Sony, you know, one of their internal studios isn't going to probably isn't going to make a game for an Xbox console. Uh, and sometimes they do that uh, by by paying for specific deals with third party publishers. Uh, so Call of Duty historically has been available on PlayStation, uh, Xbox, and PC, and you know sometimes various other places, but generally those three places. Uh, and 
there was a big concern, I think, over what is going to happen to Call of Duty, because sort of the the logical thing is, you know, Xbox would acquire a company and then its future games uh, would become theoretically exclusive to Xbox. But uh, as we have seen through various promises, contracts, deals that Xbox has made, uh, speaking other, under oath and kind of laying out a business case for why taking Call of Duty exclusive would actually be a bad thing uh, for them business-wise, uh, it seems very, very unlikely that they're going to do that. But it, the initial reaction was definitely from gamers. There was a lot of fear that Call of Duty and many other uh, Activision Blizzard games might end up in uh, exclusive and no longer on PlayStation. Then we got an email from Dylan. He writes, from my experience of Activision Blizzard, I play Overwatch and Hearthstone. It seems like they simply need more money to keep the games going. Maybe this acquisition will allow them to deliver what they want with more resources. Rebecca, to, to the point there that Dylan is making, how much is this just about sort of getting more IP, growing these games? Sort of, I, I'm curious how the motivations for this merger differ from the mergers that we've seen and talked about in the past. Yeah, Activision Blizzard is sort of in an interesting spot, right? Like they they have they have this call so they have kind of three prongs, right? They have Activision, which is mainly responsible for Call of Duty. They have some other games, but Call of Duty is the big one. Blizzard, which has Overwatch, Diablo, World of Warcraft, some other IP in there too. And then uh, King, which is their mobile division that does Candy Crush and some other mobile games. And I think over the years, there's been some sort of frustration uh, from different gamers within the Activision Blizzard fold, especially maybe on the Blizzard side, uh, is, you know, some of, some of Blizzard's uh, intellectual property has kind of been you know, left to die or, you know, maybe hasn't gotten the love that that players would have wanted it to. And I I think maybe there's a sense of hope, at least on the Blizzard side, that this will allow some money and resources to to flow to some of the properties that maybe maybe haven't gotten as much attention uh lately. So that's that's kind of an interesting dynamic. And then there's also the labor side of things. You know, Activision Blizzard has been at the center of a lot of labor concerns over the last several years. Uh and actually I believe the communication workers of America, the CWA, uh, uh, sent a letter to the FTC in support of this acquisition, which having having a workers union actively come out in support of a giant acquisition like this uh, feels very surprising to me. But I, I think that they believe that under Microsoft, uh, labor conditions at Activision Blizzard will actively improve. And so that's that's another dynamic that I think mm. is very unique to the situation. Get into that a bit more uh, in a minute here. Um, Gene, let me ask you quickly here, in, in these console wars between Microsoft and Sony and Nintendo, what are the other participants on those other fronts doing? How are Nintendo and Sony reacting to this deal? Uh, Nintendo seems largely apathetic. Um, Nintendo has a unique, has always ha- held a very unique spot in that they're almost kind of uh, bulletproof in terms of what, what's going on mm-hmm. in the uh, in, in the uh, industry right now, except for uh, maybe in the 2015, 2017 when they had a, a Wii U console that didn't do really well. But Nintendo's largely apathetic. Sony was very, very, very worried. And Sony president Jim Ryan said that said in the email that he doesn't even really care about Call of Duty. He just really wants to stop the merger. Uh, he just, he just didn't, didn't want to see Microsoft succeed hmm. in attaining anything. Come back and talk more about that dynamic in a minute. Coming up, the FTC was concerned about competition in gaming and took Microsoft to court. How this deal intersects with antitrust laws. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened, we tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. 
from your car radio to your smart speaker. NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. Let's add a new voice to the conversation. Joining us now is Douglas Melamed. He was acting assistant attorney general in charge of the antitrust division at the Department of Justice. He's now a professor at Stanford Law School. And Doug Melamed joins us now from Washington. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let me start with this complaint that the FTC filed uh, now more than, than a year ago, about 23 pages in length, uh, trying to block this deal. What, what concerns, broadly speaking, did the FTC have about this, uh, this acquisition? Well, the concerns that were litigated in the case are fairly traditional concerns when uh, there's a merger of firms, one of which uh, controls an input that is considered valuable to a competitor of the other firm. So the the fear uh, to the FTC in this case was that Microsoft would take call division, would take it off the Sony PlayStation platform, would deal a, 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 a serious blow to uh, Sony PlayStation's ability to continue to thrive in the console market, and that Microsoft would use that to create market power in the console market. Walk us through sort of how this played out in, in the courtroom, what that courtroom battle was look, looked like. Uh, so what do we hear from, from the FTC when, when this got to, uh, to court in California? Well, to make out a case like that, a case that would say once they buy Activision, they're going to stop uh, uh, supplying uh, this key game to an important competitor, uh, the the FTC had to establish as a core of their case two propositions. One, that acquiring Activision would give Microsoft the ability to impose significant harm on uh, PlayStation, and two, that it would have an incentive to do that. And where Microsoft, rather where the FTC lost the case, was that it was unable to prove that Microsoft would have that incentive. Hmm. Uh, basically, the analysis showed that uh, Microsoft would lose more in terms of revenues from uh, Sony for uh, Call of Duty than it would gain in terms of increased console sales as a result of the weakening of uh, PlayStation in the event that it did withhold Call of Duty. Uh, Rebecca Valentine, you were covering this trial, and uh, something you wrote was the FTC didn't seem to fully understand the way the video game industry works. I wonder if you could explain that and sort of how that manifested itself uh, in in the the, the legal documents we read and sort of when it played out in the courtroom as well. Yeah, it... It was kind of a, a an understanding or a lack of understanding, mm-hmm. I suppose, that that was sort of developed over the course of the entire case. I think like there were there were a lot of arguments that the FTC seemed to spend time on, uh, where they just just in small and large ways uh, functionally didn't understand how people play games or or how practically the console market works. I think I think one big example was they they spent a lot of time uh, focused on defining uh, the relevant market uh, as including. PlayStation and Xbox and not the Nintendo Switch. And they they spent a lot of time on this argument and they actually ended up winning on that very specific point. And the judge agreed with them, okay, it only counts as PlayStation and Xbox is what we're talking about here. But they spent so much time trying to argue that the Switch was not 
a part of the sort of group of video game consoles, of current next-gen video game consoles. Uh, and they so much of their case was spent on this and perhaps not on other arguments. And it, it ended up making them look a little silly because in the practical world, you know, people go to a store and they see Nintendo, PlayStation, and Xbox. And they think of those three as competitors pretty much all of the time. And so it ended up it just sort of displayed a, a little bit of silliness to it. And there were a lot of very small ways throughout the case where you'd hear their argument and they'd be talking about, you know, what gamers are doing or what mm. Xbox was likely to do. And just if, if you know gaming, you sort of roll your eyes. You're like, oh, I don't I don't I don't think they fully understand how people actually practically play games. Doug, I'd love to to situate this case in sort of the broad objectives of, of the FTC under LenaCon. Last year, the FTC and the Department of Justice filed more merger lawsuits than they have in over a decade. Uh, FTC Chair LenaCon spoke to the Wall Street Journal about new FTC guidelines on mergers and also her reaction uh, to the Microsoft trial. Look, so, you know, we were disappointed in that outcome, and I'm not really able to, to talk about ongoing litigation. The goal of these guidelines is to provide guidance to the public to antitrust practitioners about how it is that the agencies go about doing their work and doing that analysis. Historically, courts have also looked to these guidelines. And so we're hoping that these guidelines can can be illuminating and instructive for a whole set of entities out there. Illuminating and instructive. Uh, what becomes of them, Doug, uh, in light of this? Sort of what does this say about the strategy that Lena Khan has put in place? Well, I think there's no question that that uh, both Lena Khan, Chair Khan, and uh, Jonathan Cantor, the uh, head of the antitrust division now, uh, are in the progressive sort of side of antitrust, and they really believe antitrust has been much too conservative and should become much more aggressive. And they are trying, I think, in the draft guidelines to set forth a, a different kind of way of, of thinking of merger law, different from, from what's been the predominant paradigm in the past 40 years. And I think, frankly, that their their desire for merger law to be as aggressive as expressed in the guidelines probably caused them to bring a case like the Microsoft Activision case, uh, even though it, it would be very hard to reconcile with the existing law. And, they, and instead of uh, trying to persuade the court, the court to change the law, they litigated in terms of the existing law, and I think I think lost. So what they're trying to do is to move the move the bar, and um, uh, they've done it by coming up with merger guidelines that are very different in in tone and structure uh, from their predecessor guidelines, and they have a difficult task, I think, persuading courts and and uh, um, litigate, litigating parties uh, to take those guidelines seriously. They, I think they have a difficult advocacy task that they haven't yet begun. Doug, I imagine that as you've watched all of this unfold, you've thought about a time earlier in your career when you were at the Department of Justice working on that lawsuit against Microsoft for antitrust violations, a case that dragged on for, for many, many years. How did that case change the world of big tech mergers? And it's funny, I was looking at the Wall Street Journal this morning. I see there's an investigation in by the European Union now into Microsoft for, for Teams. This is a company that's had to deal with these issues over and over and over again. Well, I think that case was very important. It was the first monopolization case brought by the Justice Department in nearly 20 years, or, or the FTC, in nearly 20 years. It dealt with a, uh, many of the issues that we talk about today that were quite novel. Network effects was a brand new idea then. The principal focus was on the browsers, which were uh, sold or, or distributed for zero price. So it's so, you know, one of these zero price things. And um, I think what the case showed was that the antitrust laws can be an effective 
tool for dealing with anti-competitive conduct in the digital economy with zero-priced goods, with uh, markets characterized by network effects and the like. But the specific issues that we're dealing with now, I think, are, are really quite different uh, and uh, you know, go, go well beyond the kinds of problems that we dealt with in the Microsoft case. That's Douglas Melamed. He's a professor at Stanford Law School. He was the former acting assistant attorney general for antitrust. We're also speaking with Rebecca Valentine, senior reporter at IGN, a website that covers gaming and entertainment. Gene Park is a reporter for The Washington Post. I'm David Gura, and this is 1A. The Microsoft and Activision deal has been blocked uh, in the U.K. over concerns about how the company would handle cloud gaming. And, Gene, on this, I'll turn to you. What is cloud gaming? And as we talk about gaming gaming writ large, how big a part of it uh, is cloud gaming? Uh, Cloud gaming is uh, basically being able to play uh, high-quality video games uh, based on the cloud. So you would log into your browser and you would, uh, for example, the Google Stadia console that isn't uh, is, that is now defunct, and that kind of is a lead into uh, the the second part of the, the answer here, uh, where you would, I would play a, a game like Call of Duty like on a browser. I don't need I don't need a console. I don't need anything. Maybe I can do it through my phone. I could just uh, boot it up on my phone and start playing it uh, through my five G connection. So that's pretty much what cloud gaming is. Um, Basically, a boxless, boxless gaming that's that's the stream through through your, your your device, like Netflix or HBO Max. Um, now, going back to your second question, mm. cloud gaming is, is is much much smaller, uh, and it hasn't really uh, really gained steam. Uh, Amazon has its own cloud gaming service uh, that's kind of struggling right now. No one's even no one even talks about it. Um, Google Google had their cloud gaming uh, service go up, and it failed. Uh, Microsoft has cloud gaming as well, uh, but it's only very limited to uh, the, the the games that they offer on their subscription service, Xbox Game Pass, and it's also not very used very much. Nobody, there's not strong evidence that people use cloud gaming as their primary way of of playing video games. It is a way for people who don't have the resources to play to to buy these machines outright. But right now, uh, it's it's a very very small market, and that's kind of where the puzzlement from where the UK CMA uh, decision came from, where so much of it focused on uh, the the potential of cloud gaming, where the the cloud gaming really hasn't really even begun to tap its potential yet. Doug Melnett, let me ask you lastly here. Uh, I saw this in the Economist. Uh, the Economist writing the biggest winners from this deal, besides Activision shareholders, may be other game developers such as Take Two and Electronic Arts. Their popular franchises, Grand Theft Auto and FIFA, respectively, make the companies ripe targets for acquisition. Uh, Share prices across the industry have been rising since the American ruling, possibly in anticipation of a takeover spree. Before you joined us, Doug, we were talking about the atmosphere or the environment for additional mergers. Are you of the belief that given what we've seen here in the U.S., we're going to see more of it in this space, more, more mergers, easier mergers when it comes to gaming? Well, I wouldn't say easier mergers. I, I think there may well be a stimulus to, to mergers in the sense that Microsoft won that case and others might think they too can win. I suspect from the perspective of the uh, uh, Federal Trade Commission, however, 
more mergers are going to be uh, would be a provocation for challenge because they would say, as they say in the new proposed guidelines, well, there's a trend toward consolidation in this market. If Microsoft or another company becomes too big because of the total uh, portfolio of games that they own, then they really do have the power to hurt uh, uh, competing console distributors or otherwise gain market power to the detriment of uh, consumers, uh, for example, uh, in the um, cloud services. So I think there will be efforts uh, probably for more acquisitions. Uh, They may well win in court, but I think they're going to be challenged by the agencies. That was Douglas Melamed. He's a professor at Stanford Law School. He formerly served as acting assistant attorney general in charge of the antitrust division at the Department of Justice. Doug, thank you very much for the time. And I'll mention again, we invited the FTC, Microsoft, and Activision to participate in today's conversation, but they all declined. Coming up, how will the Microsoft and Activision merger change the industry and impact you as a gamer? Back in just a moment. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. Let's get back into the conversation with this message from Sullivan, who writes, The Microsoft Activision merger would be detrimental to the gaming industry. It would take the Call of Duty franchise, uh, one of Sony's biggest games, in revenue streams away from them solely by the fact that Microsoft is a tech company. Sony is an entertainment company. Because of that, Microsoft has much deeper pockets. Gene, the FTC's main argument had to do with the availability of this franchise, of Call of Duty, on platforms other than the Xbox, Microsoft reached a deal with Sony that will ensure Call of Duty will be playable on PlayStation for at least a decade, 10 more years. What can you tell us about that agreement, how it came about, and, and what it means for this ecosystem more broadly? Uh, yeah, basically, uh, the agreement came about because of this huge uh, worry about, about Call of Duty. Um, I think <clears throat> uh, it's important to understand how important Call of Duty is. Call of Duty is uh, year in and year out the best-selling game uh, of the in, in, entire industry. Uh, we talk about how Barbie uh, blew a box office uh, the, the, uh, records with hundreds of millions of dollars, mm-hmm. right? Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 last year in November uh, made $800 million in three days. Uh, that's that's the stakes uh, that, that that's that Sony's worried about. And most of Call of Duty sales do happen on PlayStation. So it does seem like that Microsoft did have intentions of continuing to sell Call of Duty on PlayStation uh, consoles anyways. I'm not sure if uh, any of the uh, legal maneuvering needed to be required, uh, especially since Microsoft uh, acquired uh, Minecraft for uh, a really sweet deal several years ago, and they continue to distribute Minecraft on PlayStation and Nintendo uh, platforms as well. And I think I would argue that Call of Duty is basically around the same amount of, of size uh, in terms of importance for revenue for them. So it really does seem like that Microsoft was always going to be offering Call of Duty at, at, at some extent uh, with Sony. The, the thing is that Sony was going to lose the marketing rights to Call of Duty. Mm. Uh, year in and year out, uh, Sony PlayStation always has exclusive content that comes to uh, the, the, their version of Call of Duty and they, they're always promoting it through their press conferences. And 
uh, if once this deal finishes, that's no longer the case. Microsoft will have all the, uh, uh, the marketing power for Call of Duty. Rebecca, a question about cost. As I hear Gene talk about how much money is at stake here, and I'm asking this for, let's say, a parent who has thus far resisted getting his kid <laughs> one, one of these things. How much do these consoles cost? And I gather from listening to both of you talk, there, there is not a race to the bottom in terms of pricing these consoles. They're, they're very expensive. Yeah, they absolutely can be very expensive. Um, the the there there are various versions uh, of these different consoles. Uh, they're the the absolute most expensive one uh, is the Xbox Series X, uh, which I'm very frantically checking my numbers just to make sure I don't uh, tell you the wrong price. <laughs> um, uh, but the, yeah, okay, I was right. Yeah, the Xbox Series X is uh, retailing for $499.99 uh, okay. right now, which is is pretty far up there. But uh, um, on the, the cheaper end is the Xbox Series S, which is roughly, it, it's basically the same thing. It plays all the same games. Uh, it doesn't have a disk drive, um, and it's slightly less powerful, uh, but it's $299.99 mm-hmm. uh, for that. And then uh, the PlayStation uh, 5, I believe, uh, sits right in the middle of the two, uh, $399.99. You know, there's obviously you know, discounts and, and various times when those can be on sale. But yeah, that's that's kind of the, we're talking several hundred dollars mm-hmm. if you want a video game console. We've got another message here. This is from Matt. The Activision Microsoft merger is good for the technological side of gaming. I mean, these major companies design and create all of the technology that the gaming industry uses to advance itself. But on the creative end of it, I would say it's not a good thing. Uh, AAA titles are fun. There's a lot of, uh, you know, fun to be had with them, but all of the creative output that comes into gaming and some of the major, like, works of art that are video games are not generally designed and made and produced by these companies because those are not the ones that are guaranteed to make money, like Call of Duty and other things like that. So technology-wise, yes, creative industry, bad. Rebecca, respond to that if you would. We've talked a lot about sort of the effect this will have on on the industry and on the business of of gaming. But I, I'm very interested in Matt's point, especially in light of what Gene was saying that it can take 10, 15 years to design and and, and make these games. What do you see it doing to change the creativity uh, behind designing and creating video games? Yeah, I think within Activision Blizzard, it's certainly an interesting question. You know, Activision Blizzard, you know, like we've discussed, spends a lot of resources on Call of Duty specifically, and as well as on a few other franchises, uh, World of Warcraft being a pretty big one for them, Diablo. Um, they kind of, they put they put a lot of eggs in a very small handful of baskets creatively, and that works for them money-wise, but Activision Blizzard owns a whole bunch of intellectual property that hasn't seen the light of day in years uh and they they kind of just sit on it and i think there's been a little bit of dismay from from fans of of those franchises and also people who are fans of you know creative people making brand new work as well um who are sort of dismayed that they haven't seen a whole lot uh in terms of you know new stories and new characters coming out of the studio um and something that we've seen from microsoft uh recently is you know we've discussed that some of their some of their bigger games like halo infinite didn't do quite as well for them but in the last year they've actually had some small very creative successes you know they had uh this game called pentiment that came out last year that was uh, this the small uh sort of medieval script game uh that was really cool 
they had a game earlier this year called Hi-Fi Rush that was, again, smaller scale, but still really, really well received. And I think there's a little bit of optimism maybe that with Microsoft's financial backing, Activision Blizzard will feel a little more confident sort of digging into the vault and and bringing bringing some of its its creative work uh, back from the grave maybe a little bit, or even uh, sort of passing the keys off to other studios within Microsoft who might be willing to use uh, the rights to that property to make something new and creative and fresh, or even that within Activision Blizzard, they might just come up with something totally new. So that's, I guess, maybe the optimistic side uh, creatively. Gene, when you look at this landscape, obviously there are these these big players taking up so much space. Uh, I've got to assume there are some independent players as well. Um, how much space are they taking up? And I'm just curious, are there uh, independent games that you like or that you, you would recommend? Oh, uh, there's the, here's the thing. Independent games have, there's never really been a better time for independent games, especially with, of course, how, how widespread the internet is. Um, uh, you know, um, Among Us is uh, the, the largest video game to come out in the last three, four years. And that's completely an independent game that was uh, completely fueled by word of mouth. And it became a complete phenomenon to the point where uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was playing it uh, during the uh, pandemic uh, in 2020. So uh, there's absolutely a, a lot of space for indie, for indie games. Uh, maybe not so much in terms of like mainstream coverage, but uh, there's definitely pl- plenty more opportunities for lightning in the bottom moments like Among Us to happen. And that's part of the encouraging thing. There's a lot of really good independent, independent games uh, out even this year. Uh, there's a game called Dredge uh, where you're, you're fishing through an ocean and you're finding, uh, as you're fishing closer and closer uh, or farther farther out to sea, you're finding uh, hor- horrific things in the ocean. And that's part of the mystery of finding out uh, the, what happens in the game. Um, yeah, there's just so many games out right now in the space. So creativity is really thriving in the indie space for sure. Gene, you mentioned Among Us, and and I think about mobile gaming. I look back on the the initial announcement of this deal back in January of 2022, and Microsoft said uh, in that statement, mobile is the largest segment in gaming with nearly 95% of all players globally enjoying games on on mobile. Uh, Activision developing Candy Crush, of course, wildly wildly popular. How big is this market? How much is it uh, going to grow? Do you think in these coming years? Oh, it's uh, it's, it's absolutely huge. Uh, when, when you talk, when we're counting the three billion gamers worldwide, a large segment of that is uh, mobile. Uh, the the best selling uh, console of all time was the PlayStation Two, and that was about 150 million. Right now, there's maybe about 130, 120, 20 million uh, PlayStation Fours and Nintendo Switches, and those two are. Uh, the the best selling uh, console uh, consoles out right now. So you think about the the, the space between 150 million uh, console players and three billion players. A lot of that is uh, is in mobile, and Call of Duty Mobile is absolutely ginormous. Uh, that, that that's that's another money maker that you can't you, you can't forget. So uh, Microsoft CEO Phil Spencer said that a large part of the Activision Blizzard was to uh, shore up the mobile side because. Uh, all three uh, big console makers, Nintendo, uh, Sony, and uh, Microsoft, uh, they're not huge players in the mobile space. And now Microsoft has a really, really huge uh, feather in their cap uh, with the king side of the, the Activision Blizzard King acquisition. Gene, what are you watching for as this deal moves forward to the CMA, Competition and Markets Authority uh, in the UK? Um, I'd be interested to see how the, the, the deal changes, whether Call of Duty will continue to be sold through Europe or, or whatnot. But it definitely does seem like that they're, they're probably going to uh, come to some kind of agreement on what could be offered on the cloud service uh, in general. 
Great to talk to both of you about this landmark deal. Gene Park, video games reporter for The Washington Post. Rebecca Valentine, senior reporter at IGN. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Today's producers were Arfi Getty and Chris Castano. The program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday.